Heavenly Father, uh, you are the God of all wisdom and all, uh, uh, all action. Father, you are the God who uh, has sent forth your servant into the world. Uh, you, you sent your son, Jesus Christ, that by his death, uh, we might be saved. We might be reconciled. Father, we know that it is because of uh, the fact that he lived and died and rose again uh, that we have newness of life. Father, we thank you for revealing uh, him to us through your word. And I pray now that you would uh, speak to us by your word through this passage. Uh, I ask that even though we know much about Saul, uh, you would help us to not make assumptions about what you are doing in the text um, but in all, I pray that you would encourage us, make much of Christ in our hearts and our minds, and I pray, Father, that, that he would be glorified in uh, and through this time. Quiet our hearts uh, where we're distracted, uh, give us uh, ears to hear, uh, eyes to see, hearts to believe, and I do pray, Father, uh, that you would grant us uh, an image of your, of your son, Jesus Christ, that we might glorify him. In his name we pray, amen. So uh, in our text this morning, we are, as Janae read for us, uh, introduced to Israel's first king, and that's uh, Saul, the son of Kish. And I'm, I'm assuming that many, if not all of us, are familiar with uh, his story, um, Certainly in the book of Acts, it was kind of narrated that he was king for 40 years, uh, and then he was removed, and then David became king. And you might already also be familiar with um, his less than stellar reputation, how eventually God did actually remove him uh, from the kingship, uh, and he gave it to David, the shepherd boy who killed Goliath. And as we look at these two chapters this morning, if you're anything like me, uh, you have this temptation, uh, or you might have this temptation, to be on the lookout for signs of Saul's inability to effectively lead his people. Right? We know that he's, he's kind of heading downward, and so I think as human beings, we love to, to look and see, well, saw that coming. There's just something in us that we don't like to be surprised. We like to see the future. But I don't think that's the purpose of our text for this morning. I don't think the purpose of our text this morning is to critically pick apart uh, and find fault with Saul. I think the question that the text actually sets before us is, is a different one, and that's how does God respond to you when your actions, your words, your thoughts demonstrate unbelief and a rejection of God's rule in your life? If you think about last week, uh, Pastor Brandon pointed out uh, that we often are, are prone to reject God and to look to human solutions uh, to our fears and insecurities. And if you didn't have a chance to hear the sermon, it is on the website. I would encourage you to do that. It was an excellent, excellent message on uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8. And the fear, our fears and insecurities, when we think about those, they might revolve around any number of things. And Brandon pointed this out. It might be pressures from school or a project at work to difficulties with relationships, an insensitive spouse, disobedient children, or if you're single, it might be the fear of being alone. 
And then instead of looking to God for help and for hope, we tend to look to human solutions to escape our anxieties or, or we try to control them. Right? Instead of uh, looking to God, maybe we flip on the TV to escape into a sitcom. Um, maybe you go shopping. Maybe you grab a beer or a glass of wine. Uh, maybe you play a game on your phone. Maybe you look at pornography. Maybe you make phone calls and you develop contingency plans. You work extra hours. You gather supporters. You clean your house. You just get angry. And all these examples, what we see are ways in which we are looking to something other than God to provide us peace and security, the peace and security that our heart longs for and that we uh, desire or maybe uh, seeking to control our lives, uh, to suppress that nagging feeling of weaknesses, weakness and vulnerability that maybe you dread so much. Ultimately, what it boils down to is these are forms of spiritual idolatry, and we do it all the time. And so the question that I think we're posed with in our text today is, how does God respond to that? How, do, how does God respond to us? Does he get angry, and does he turn his back on us? Does he get distracted? Does he try and teach us a lesson by bringing more difficulty into our lives? Or does he simply turn a blind eye and pretend that our difficulties never happened? Or that our, our sin and avoiding of him isn't real? Well, Israel was guilty of spiritual idolatry. The future was uncertain, and so they wanted a king in order to be like all the other nations. They wanted a warrior king uh, who, to judge them and to go out before them and to fight their battles. But the Lord told them through Samuel, told Samuel to warn them that in their desire to be like everybody else, what they were doing was actually rejecting God. Rejecting God from being their king over them and exchanging a God who gives, how God does give to us, to a king who takes away. And so after hearing, Samuel's, uh, deliver, uh, after hearing Samuel deliver God's warning, we read in 1 Samuel 8, 19, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And instead they said, no, there shall be a king over us. And chapter 8 ends with the Lord telling Samuel to obey their voice and make them a king. So Samuel sent everybody home. And that's where we pick up on our text today. So how will God respond to their rejection of his kingship, his godly kingship over them? Well, in our text this morning, I believe what we will see is a picture of God's mercy toward his people. He responds to their sinful rejection by sending them a chosen king who will bring salvation. So God shows his mercy toward his sinful people by bringing them salvation through his chosen and anointed king. And in our passage, um, we'll see first that God's anointed king has been providentially sent by God. Providentially sent by God. And so chapter 9 opens with the lineage of a Benjamite named Kish. And uh, the text tells us that he was a man of wealth, 
a man of standing, power, and virtue. That word meant all of those things together. Uh, he was a, in a good position, and he had a son named Saul. And the text tells us that he was, he was handsome, that he was tall. And did I mention that he was handsome? Right, this is really emphasized. In fact, it's emphasized so much that um, right, he's better looking than anybody else in Israel. Saul had a lot going for him. In respect, um, uh, in several respects, Saul is a good candidate for becoming a king. The king that the people asked for. And the Hebrew word uh, that used asked for in chapter 8 sounds a lot like the word, the name Saul. So the, the root for uh, asked for, uh, Saul, in chapter 8, 10, even that sounds like his name, Saul. It's, he's the one who was asked for. Well, we, we see, as uh, Janae read for us, that some of the donkeys uh, in the house, or in the, the household, uh, turn up missing, and so Kish asks his son Saul to take one of his servants and to look for the donkeys. The passage just tells us that they wandered from place to place until unable to find them, they moved on. Unable to find them, they moved on. And they moved on. The passage tells us that they wander until they come to uh, Zuf. And Saul is ready to give up. And he says, come on, let's, let's go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. The truth is, they had gone through all of their provisions while they were gone. All their bread was eaten up. They didn't have anything left. They didn't have money to buy anything. But the servant had an idea. He says, well, there just happens to be this man of God in the city. And the servant points out that he's a man who's held in honor. And that all that he says comes true. All that he says comes true. And so perhaps he can tell the way that we should go. Saul raises an objection. Uh, I'm not so sure, right? He doesn't have anything to give to the man. What we don't know, the side note of giving something to a seer, who was a prophet in that time, we don't know if that's just uh, something that was done uh, more widely, culturally, or if it was even done in Israel. We're given no explanation. But Saul uses it as an excuse to not go. But the faithful servant, he comes up with a quarter of a shekel of silver. And so Saul agrees, and they head into the city. And that's where we pick up, verse 11. It says that as they went up to the city, they met uh, young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry. He's come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him. Before he goes up to a high place, you should go uh, right now. Go and find him. For the people will not eat until he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterwards, those who are invited will eat. Now go, you'll meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. And as they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Even the, the language that's used of these young women, um, apparently, not that I'm a, a Hebrew scholar, but uh, what the commentaries say is that it's even, 
even that shows that these women are just kind of talking all over themselves, excited to talk to this young man named Saul, right? Everything is going right for Saul. Well, up to this point, everything has also kind of just fallen into his lap. It's kind of been a coincidence, right? That lost donkeys, um, the apparently fruitless search finding themselves in Samuel's hometown, the encouragement from the servant, the enthusiastic directions from the women at the well, the fact that Samuel was actually home and not on his circuit that he does annually. It's just a crazy chain of events that's bringing Samuel or bringing Saul to Samuel. In fact, we might not think too much more about it except for what the author tells us in verse 15. And that's, Now the day before Saul came, the Lord revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin. And then in verse 17, it says that when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here's the man who I spoke to you about. So Samuel is expecting Saul. He's expecting him to come. And in the moment, Samuel is the only one who knows what's going on. He's the only one who knows what God is doing. God had providentially sent Saul to Samuel so that he could be anointed king. And so what does that word providence or providential mean? What do I mean by that? Well, it really means that God is orchestrating everything according to his purpose. As Dale Davis put it, providence is God's way of providing for the needs of his people. But that's not all of it, but it is some of it. He says, when I use providence here, I mean that wonderful, strange, mysterious, unguessable way that Yahweh has of ruling his world and sustaining his people and his doing it frequently over, under, around, through, or in spite of the most common stuff of our lives or, or even the bias of our own wills. In other words, God is at work orchestrating all of these events to bring Saul to Samuel. And we really shouldn't be surprised. We see evidence of it throughout Scripture. Proverbs 16.9 says that the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. I believe the, the reason why the author takes a moment to pull back the curtain uh, to reveal the, the insider details is because he wants us to be sure that we understand that without a doubt that God is indeed the one who is choosing Saul to be the first king of Israel. So it was not because of Saul's good looks or his family connection or his wealth or influence. It's not a random chance. He just happened to be at the right place at the right time. It was not because Samuel had somehow made a mistake. The reason why I think he establishes it here is because over the coming chapters, there'll be many reasons to think that the anointing uh, of Saul as king was a mistake that was made. And we might be tempted to look somewhere, look for someone to blame. I think we face the same temptations today, right? When something goes wrong, the car breaks down or the dog goes to the bathroom on the furniture or bad news comes or the phone calls pile up. This is, my wife is laughing. This is my week. It's been a slot. 
when, when things don't go according to our plan, we're tempted to look for someone to blame. We reject God as our king. Right? We reject his, the thought of his providence in our lives. And we look for someone to blame or, or somewhere to escape or some way to just take over the situation and control it. But, but Romans 8.20, it reminds us that, that we know that for those who love God, so that's for all Christians, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So all things, right? Uh, even lost donkeys, because God is at work even in the most mundane aspects of our lives and in the lives of, of the believers around you. God is at work accomplishing his good purposes. And so he wants us to know that Saul is his man, at least as the first king of Israel. God's anointed king has been providentially sent by God, right? So he has been sent. And then next we see that he's been commissioned by God. So providentially sent by God and secondarily commissioned by God. God would indeed grant uh, Israel's request for a king, but God would be the one who would set the purpose for that king. So what was God's commissioning for this anointed king, for Saul? What did he want him to do? Well, we see in verse 16 that he says, Tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. And he shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. So the first is Saul is to be anointed. He's to be set aside for a chosen task, a task that the Lord has chosen. And he'll be a prince over God's people. It's only later that uh, the word, the Hebrew word for king, Malak, will be used to describe Saul as king. For now, he's a prince. <clears throat> and all the commentators seem to agree that the reason for this language is that he is to serve under God as the heavenly king. And so he's like a prince with the Lord as the true king. He's to be a deliverer. He's tasked with saving God's people from the hand of their enemies. And for what purpose? You see, it's because of God's mercy. <clears throat> you see, God says, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. God has seen their idolatry, but he still sees, in his mercy, he still hears and sees their cry for help. The point is that God can be trusted. Right? Even when we feel like our own sins have ruined everything, we can't come near to God, we can cry out to God because he sees and he hears. And in his mercy, he has compassion. Well, the narration continues, and Saul doesn't recognize Samuel. In fact, he asks him where he can find uh, the seer's house. And so Samuel introduces himself to Saul. He invites him to eat with him at the high place and spend the night. We read in verse 22 that Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion that I give to you. 
of which I have said to you, put it aside. And so the cook uh, took up the leg and what was on it and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, see what is kept is set before you. Eat because it has been kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. He's been commissioned. And in the commissioning, uh, it says who, who the king ought to be. Uh, Samuel is showing him, uh, giving him a picture of what God's anointed king ought to be like. He ought to be a rescuer. He ought to be uh, one who uh, is the prince serving under the great king. And now we see him as he is with Samuel. He's to be over Samuel. In fact, he gives Samuel his own place of honor at the table. At the meal and and the portion that is set aside is one that is given to the priest. So now as one who is the anointed king, he has privileges that are even beyond what he normally would have. Although he is from the tribe of Benjamin, God has chosen to elevate Saul to greater honor than the prophet and commission him to deliver God's people. See, the reason why it was so significant and surprising that a Benjamite uh, should be king was that the tribe of Benjamin had a really bad reputation. See, back in in, uh, the book of Judges, in fact, right at the end of Judges, There was an incident. There was a rape of a woman. Uh, There was a murder. Uh, And when justice was asked to be fulfilled, it was actually the tribe of Benjamin who protected the one who should have been brought to justice. And so a a war broke out. And in fact, there were only about five or 600 men left living from the tribe of Benjamin. They were a disgrace. It was only afterward that they were to be built up. Not only that, but the town in which the rape took place was the town where Saul was from. And so Saul carried this with him. And so when he said uh, to Samuel, me, a Benjamite? Uh, I'm, I'm not of a great clan. Why are you saying these things to me? See, it was the Lord's prerogative to commission whom he would so he took one who was lowly and he raised him up. We begin to see a, a, a pattern. The great king is sending his anointed to be a deliverer. He's commissioning him to be a deliverer and he's raising him up from obscurity. So God's appointed king has been providentially sent by God, commissioned by God, and then confirmed and equipped by God. And the next morning, Samuel tells Saul to send his servant on ahead so that he can make known the word of God to Saul. So once they were alone, we see in chapter 10, verse 1, then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you shall save them from the hand of of their surrounding enemies. See, once Saul has been anointed with oil, Samuel makes things plain. The oil is on his head before he says to him, 
Saul, you are a deliverer. The Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. King Saul was to be prince over the Lord's heritage, to be a steward who would be in charge of delivering and watching over God's very people, his inheritance. Samuel then tells him, you'll receive three signs, three signs that will help you to know that what I'm saying is true. Three signs to confirm that the Lord is the one who has anointed him. He says, when you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys uh, that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? And then you shall go on uh, from there further and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you are to to accept from their hand. After that, you shall come uh, to Gibbeth Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. And, and then verse 6 says, Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them, and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. So these three signs are given uh, to, uh, uh, to Saul. And in fact, all three are, are actually enacted or, or uh, they, come, they come to pass all on the same day. The first that we look at is, right, you've got two men by Rachel's tomb that will tell of the donkeys, right? And this is the exact wording, right? He didn't just give kind of a, a general like, well, you'll see people and they'll recognize you. This is like really exact wording. And so that would be quite a confirmation if, uh, you know, I were to say to you, by the way, when you leave here, you're going to go to Woodman's and someone's going to tell you X, Y, Z. And it was really specific, You'd be impressed, right? I would think. But that was just the first one. The second one, right, uh, is that there were three men going up uh, to God, to worship God uh, at Bethel, right? Three goats, three loaves of bread, and a skin of wine. They're going to offer you two loaves, and, and you should accept it. The thing was that these loaves, or actually everything they were carrying, was uh, for worship, once again, as God's anointed, he would be able to accept it. I, I'm really curious, but we're not told, uh, how did that conversation go down? Right? Did they recognize him and say, hey, uh, you've been gone a little while. Do you have any bread? No, uh, we're all out. But the reason we're not told any of these details is because they're not important. All we're told is that these first two signs... Uh, 
uh, were met. That third sign then, that group of prophets coming down, prophesying, and it says that the spirit of the Lord will rush upon Saul. Saul will prophesy with them, and then it says that he will be turned into a different man. Now, part of the, what's interesting about this is, is the location, right, of where this would happen. This was near the garrison of the Philistines. <clears throat> and some uh, scholars uh, think that, that Samuel, uh, or maybe what the Lord meant for Saul to do was, once the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon Saul, that he was to attack the, garris, the Philistine garrison. Now, like, where would you get that from in this text? Well, let me tell you where you might get it from in the text. Uh, that phrasing uh, of the spirit rushing upon him, that's similar to what we see happening uh, primarily uh, primarily to Samson. Right? It's mentioned a number of times to Samson. So you've got these first two signs. Oh, I, I'm sorry. Hold on, let me... Back up here a little bit. Those first two signs <clears throat> happened right away. And, and let me read verse 9. That when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave Saul another heart. It says all three signs came to pass. And then we're going to zoom in then on that, that uh, last sign. Uh, it was actually in... Uh, Judges chapter 14 and 15, where we find Samson uh, and the description of God sending his spirit, uh, his spirit rushing upon him to give him strength. And, and in his strength, he did a number of things. The first was that he, uh, he tore apart a lion. And another part was that he defeated Philistines single-handedly. And so then we see, though, in verse 10, that when... They came to Gibeah. Behold, a group of prophets met him. So it was as if, as what, what, uh, what Samuel had said. And the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he pro prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place said, uh, answered, And who is their father? Therefore, it became a proverb, is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Well, every one of the signs came to pass that very day. The message to Saul was confirmed by the signs, and Saul was equipped by the Spirit. But then Saul doesn't do anything. Once the spirit has rushed upon him. And the text doesn't really make it entirely clear if God had intended Saul to attack the garrison. Nothing more is said about it. But I think what is clear is that Saul's prophesying was enough to become a spectacle. It was, it was so out of the ordinary, so unlike him, that it became a proverb for something amazing, right? This was so out of character. One commentator pointed out that it, it's not easy to accept that those that we have known well are even capable of changing. Just think about it. If, you, if you've known someone a long time, the way all of those people seem to know Saul, the fact that he was prophesying was shocking. 
In fact, we see nothing in Saul, I think, either good or bad, that would indicate that he's qualified to be king of Israel apart from this anointing. There's nothing that stands out about Saul, but there's also nothing horrible about Saul. Uh, Of all the sons that are mentioned so far, Saul is the only one who obeys his father. So he's not entirely bad, but he's also timid. He's kind of bumbling, right? He's following his servant. He's gaining uh, his encouragement by uh, the, the women at the well. Saul is not a leader, but yet God has confirmed and equipped him. God's anointed king has been confirmed and equipped, and so therefore he is able to be the king of Israel. So God's anointed king has been providentially sent by God, commissioned by God, confirmed and equipped by God, and finally revealed by God or or brought out into the open. It seems that Saul was not the same man, even whether or not he attacked in garrisons. He was not the same man who had left, and it grabbed the attention of his uncle. Samuel, uh, Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, where did you go? And he said, to seek the donkeys. And when they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. It's kind of strange, right? Why wouldn't he tell everybody? Some commentators say it was just wisdom that he didn't go boasting, and it was his humility. Others say he was afraid. So it's not clear uh, if it was a sign of Saul's timidity or humility, passivity, wisdom, or folly. We don't know. But it is strange. And it's intentional that he doesn't tell his uncle. But then the next scene is that uh, Samuel is gathered all the people once again on, at Mizpah. Mizpah is where we saw in uh, chapter 7 that uh, he had gathered uh, the, the people and they repented. And so now, once again, Samuel is calling the people to repent. In verse 17, he says, Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought I brought." Up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and distresses. And you have said to him, Set a king over us. The message, right? You have said to God, Set a king over us. So then Samuel says, Now therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. It's a call to repent. They needed a history lesson. And and I can't help but wonder in this moment if they were really thinking about a history lesson. The last time that they were assembled together like this, uh, in this way where they were had to assemble by their tribes and by their thousands, it was under Joshua. And uh, under Joshua, uh, they had lost a battle that they should have won. And the Lord made it clear that someone had sinned in the camp. Do you remember Achan? Right? They ended up stoning him at the end. And, and so they cast lots. All were gathered and they divided out first 
this, then that, then this, and until it came to Achan. And so now Samuel says, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and your thousands. They didn't know what was coming, right? Certainly Saul hadn't told them. Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And then Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. Now, what are we supposed to do with that? Right, they, they sought this king. Well, actually, I don't know it's a king yet, but, but they sought Saul, and he could not be found. Now, it, we said, well, it's just kind of a weird wording. It's the exact same wording of the donkeys. They could not be found. And so what do they do? They have to inquire of the Lord. Is there still a man to come? There's got to be another one. God, what's going on? But the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and they took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. Remember his looks? Here he is. Samuel said to the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. I think this is an indictment against Israel at this point. And the reason I say that is because what have they been presented of Saul? He's tall. He's good looking. He should be king. I think sometimes we, we elect our politicians that way. They're, they're, maybe we like a little bit about them, but they look good to us and let, let's go with it. They don't know that that, uh, that Saul has been providentially sent by God. They don't know that he's been commissioned by God, that his uh, anointing was, was confirmed, that he's been equipped by God by the Spirit. All they know is that he's here and this looks good. Long live the king. Well, then Samuel does one more thing. He, he told the people the rights and duties of kingship. Most likely what this was, was he, uh, this is hearkening back to Deuteronomy 17, which provided the rights and duties of a king. Like, here's what a king should look like. One of the things that he needed to do was he needed to write a copy of the law to always be with him. Uh, he needed to have his own copy so that he could read it every day. And it says that... Um, that Samuel wrote all these things up and they, uh, in a book and laid it up before the Lord. In other words, what Samuel, I think, was doing at this point was he was saying, you wanted a king like the nations, but God will be the one who will determine what the king is like. You wanted a, you wanted a king that would uh, lead you into war. God's king will follow God. Now, was, was Saul going to do this perfectly? No, he wasn't. And I think we could, at this point, probably be tempted to say, well, yeah, it should have been David. 
But if you read all of First and Second Samuel, you're going to know David didn't do that great of a job being king either. At this point, Saul sent the people home. I'm sorry, Samuel sent all the people away, um, each one to his own home. And then in verse 26, it says that Saul also went to his home at Gibeah. And with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. But Saul held his peace. And so what we see here is that a rebellious Israel has demanded a king. And the ones among the ranks who say, this guy is no good. The ones who may have actually been right about Saul, the fact that he's going to fail in the end, even though they're right, they're worthless men. Because what have they done? They've rejected God as their king, and they've rejected God's king. They're worthless. It's the same uh, word for worthless that will be used later for Nabal. So that they despised him and brought him no presents. What did Saul do? Well, we're going to find that Saul goes to his home, yes. And in the next, very next chapter, we're, we're going to find that, what is he doing? He's plowing. He's going back to work. He doesn't have enough money to, to raise up an army to be king. And so he's dependent upon the, the free gifts of others. God touched the hearts of some men of valor to go with him and to join him. Even if Saul wasn't ideal and doesn't turn out to be ideal, we see that those who are faithful to God attach themselves to God's king. 1 Samuel 9 and 10 shows us, I think, a picture of God's mercy toward his people as he responds to their sinful rejection of him as their king. So we know that God very well could have brought down fire from heaven, but instead he calls a king. How much more for us, right? How much more for us sinful people, right? We reject God. We reject his kingship. We follow after things all the time. We're idolatrous. And yet what has he done? He sent to us the greater king, King Jesus. See, Jesus was providentially sent by God in the fullness of time. The same wording is used uh, in uh, 1 Samuel in our chapters that we find in John three sixteen and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. We see Jesus Christ is, is the one who is the greater king, the fuller king. He was providentially sent by God. He was commissioned by God to be the savior and redeemer of God's people, purchasing uh, the forgiveness of sin and reconciliation between God and men. He's commissioned at his baptism, but, but we know that he himself is God. And so it is by him that his people uh, have life eternal. He was confirmed by many signs and wonders. We see that throughout the Gospels. 
and ultimately he has been revealed by God. First, now, I would say now, to his people, and one day every eye will see his glory and bow down in submission to Jesus Christ as the King of Kings. And yet, like rebellious Israel, we often do not submit to his rule in our lives. I think about the catechism question. In fact, never, not one day goes by when we're not breaking his law. But God is merciful. I want to close by reading Psalm 103, part of Psalm 103. And it's the heart of God that I think that we see in 1 Samuel. It's the heart of God that's reflected in God sending Jesus Christ. So Psalm 103, starting with verse 8, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love to those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are dust. Grateful for the heart of God, reflected in a king who would, send, who would die in our place that we might be raised eternally with him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness in sending Jesus Christ. We thank you for your kindness in, in the ways in which you reveal yourself to us. Father, even the imagery of, of kingship, we know uh, apart from Christ, it's broken. And broken men have uh, filled the kingship. But now we, we place our trust and our hope in the great king, Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that as we contemplate the ways in which you have sent him into our lives, into this world, that you have uh, commissioned him, that you have confirmed and equipped him, that you reveal him to us. I pray, Father, that you would give us eyes to see. Eyes to see ways in which we don't follow after you. Eyes to see uh, ways in which you are at work providentially in our lives through even the mundane things of our lives. And Father, I pray that if there are any here who don't know you, I pray that you would open their eyes. Open their eyes to a God who is reaching out in grace. A God who sent his son that, uh, to, to live a perfect life that we couldn't live. To die the death of a sinner so that we wouldn't have to. I pray that those truths would be made known to us and that we would worship Jesus Christ as king, that we would know that we need his kingship in our lives and that we would submit to him joyfully. We ask this in your son Jesus' precious name. Amen.